All right. Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And today we have a, a very special treat. It's, it's something I've been looking forward to doing this, these topics in terms of my Shroud Wars series here for a long time. And uh, yeah, joining me, we've got uh, three special guests. So uh, straight away to my right, we have uh, a newcomer to the show, Mark Neer. Hey, Mark. Hello. Welcome here. And uh, we also have a couple of returning guests. So we have uh, Mark Antionacci, who's been on the show once before, I believe. How, how's it going? And of course, everyone's favorite Shroud Skeptic, Hugh Ferry. <laughs> hey, Hugh, how's it going? Hi, everybody. Yes, for those who are watching at home, I normally sit on Dale's shoulder and whisper into his ear. <laughs> He's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Um, I, without any further ado, I, I, before we get into today's topics, obviously we're we're looking today at two topics. So, number one, the historical authenticity of the shroud is it are there is it accurate or inaccurate with a first century Jewish uh, provenance and can we link it to the historical Jesus? Um, and as well, the second topic is looking at the shroud then anatomically. Is it accurate or inaccurate on that front? Um, but just before we get to those topics, I just want to introduce uh, my guests and stuff. So Mark uh, Neer, since you're new to the show, do you mind just maybe taking a couple minutes to introduce yourself to the audience, how you got involved in the shroud and a little about your faith journey, if you don't mind? Okay, well, um... I've written a book. Um, in fact, maybe I can show that to you right now. Yeah. It's called The Turin Shroud, Physical Evidence of Life After Death with Insights from a Jewish Perspective. So I am Jewish, and that is one thing I'll be, I was asked to kind of deal with somewhat. So to introduce some Jewish perspective. And uh, so I'm, that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about um, um, what else did you wonder about uh, my situation? Uh, yeah, just like how you got wrapped up in shroud research. How did that that start for you? Well, you know, when they were get before they actually started to make plans for the uh, <clears throat> sending the team to do the big research on the shroud in the seventies, um, you know, it was catching the attention of the media, and that's when it caught my attention as well. And um, so I was fascinated about that, <laughs> and I followed it pretty well since then <clears throat> awesome all right cool well yeah thank you so much it's great to have you here and uh just uh, going to you uh mark antinacci so i know you you've been on real seekers before but we're also broadcasting on a new podcast faith unaltered do, do you maybe just want to do the same thing just kind of quickly introduce us as to who you are how you got wrapped up in the shroud um i'm an attorney uh, i've written two books on the shroud um I study as comprehensively the, uh, the subject matters as I can, because I'm a lawyer and everything kind of links in a way. And uh, that's what I focus on is the evidence um, for whatever question you're deciding. The big general question is its authenticity. And uh, I find the evidence unlike anything I, I've ever seen in my life. And um, uh, you'll never find a more important subject, uh, or, or at least a more potentially important subject um, in your life. You know, it's 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 the most it's the most important subject to come down to peak in two thousand years, um, as far as I think. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, turning to my last guest, Hugh. Obviously, you don't need to introduce yourself to the audience, but uh, do you have any any in 
uh, interesting updates or anything you want to share? No, no, not really. Um, no, as everybody knows, I well, perhaps I, I started as a, uh, a good Catholic adherent of the Shroud's authenticity. And uh, after about five years ago, or maybe longer, I decided that it wasn't authentic at all. And the more I tried, like a good scientist, to prove to myself that I was wrong and that it was authentic, the less evidence I found <laughs> that would actually justify that opinion. So I'm, I'm a convinced medievalist now. Gotcha. Do you Are have you... a scientific background, Hugh? Yes, you... I've been a science teacher all my life. Yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, without any further ado, uh, let's get straight into our first topic. And uh, we'll start off with uh, uninterrupted openings for, you know, about 10, 15 minutes or so. I know Mark, Mark Near uh, is about 20 minutes, so that's fine. Um, but yeah, um, let's start with Mark Antinacci for, for this one. What What's your opening case on... Can, I, can I just interfere for a bit? And that if I appear not to be listening, I'm not bending over, stroking the cat. I'm making notes. <laughs> I'm going to try to sneak in a breakfast when you guys are talking. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, go go ahead, Mark. Uh, a, and but I'll be listening. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know we we're going to make an opening statement, but any lawyer could talk for ten minutes <laughs> without any prompting. Um, I find, to, to be honest with you, there, there's only one scientific um, item of evidence uh, that's inconsistent with the Shroud's authenticity, that's definitively um, inconsistent with its authenticity, and that's the carbon dating of 1988. Um, and uh, I'm going to be advocating um, that the one explanation, the most logical explanation, the one type of uh, event that's never been researched on a shroud, it's never been examined for radiation. Sterp never did that. And Sterp was planning on doing some more examinations, but the radiocarbon scientists really insisted on, on their elimination from any more, but they had testing and 25 other areas planned in addition to the radiocarbon dating, which, which the radiocarbon laboratories would have performed. Um, and even then, they were just going to get in a little bit on the question of radiation. But, but um, Phillips raises, uh, to me, a key point um, in, in the Nature Journal um, when he states that um, the shroud, the image, very well could have been uh, caused by radiation from that crucified corpse wrapped in the shroud. And, um, and Hedges replies, and he says, well, we thought of these processes, but my God, this is just so uh, unfathomable. We didn't even bother with it, in essence. And their actions speak louder than words. Um, they had, they all had extra samples. And they could have told whether the shroud was irradiated or not by taking a chlorine 36 to 35 ratio. And there was, and, and that technology was around in the late 1980s. They didn't do that. Um, 
And they took the raw dating data that they were supposed to share with the other analyzing institution. Never shared it at all. Never put it in the official report. All they did was start averaging it to make it tighter and tighter. But if the data is not homogenous, averaging it warps what you're doing. And that's what happened with the shroud. If you take heterogeneous, genetic, heterogeneous uh, data and you start averaging it, you know what you're going to do? You're going to eliminate the oldest and the youngest. And that's exactly what they did and got it barely tight enough. It really wasn't tight enough at all. But they had, that's, that's not bad. And they not only do this with eight dates from Arizona, they do this with two more dates they get rid of for, for a questionable reason. Um, two of Zurich's dates, which are among the youngest. And then among the oldest, Oxford sends in its own average dates. They only took five readings and they send in three, two of which are average, which they don't state which one. And then the other one, You've got to guess, they don't state which one, but that's an actual measurement. But if you add up the four other dates, original datings that Oxford did that never sent in, you've got 14 out of 18 original measurements that aren't even in the original report. This is haphazard and shoddy. And, uh, I'm proposing a series of tests and experiments on control samples, linen, blood, serum, postmortem watery fluid, even the side seam um, and the side strip, uh, all the materials on the shroud that could have been there um, when, if and when a radiating event from the body occurred. And you could prove that if this occurs to, to new materials, and all the material would have been new at the time that the, the man uh, was, was buried in the shroud, you can actually prove whether it was irradiated with neutrons, the number of neutrons it received, whether the carbon datings of the shroud and actually the sidarium were accurate, what its real age is, when the neutron radiating event occurred, where it occurred, and if all of those, with all those various materials, all line up to the first century and in Jerusalem or the tomb of Christ, that kind of thing, you've got the person's identity. The, the, the clincher for its identity is you've got a miraculous radiating event after all the other steps of the passion and crucifixion were occurred and burial. And, and you've got all there. I think you've got proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't, it's not going to be 100% proof like you could, like you could do this event, but you're not trying to prove that we can do a miraculous event, but you're proving that a miraculous event occurred under all those circumstances. 
out of, out of curiosity, if you don't mind me just uh, asking a quick follow-up on your opening there, do you think, so I, I think you're right in terms of us uh, testing and finding out these future facts. Do you think on the facts that we know today, as of today, we can establish that link with the historical Jesus, or is it, it will solely be on the basis of what we can learn in the future? No, you would have to take new samples, uh, but you can do that very easily, very minimally. And I'll get into that uh, beyond the, the opening remarks. But yes, you could do that. And uh, I, I wouldn't use the remaining samples from the laboratories because they haven't even, um, you don't know what they've done with them or what they tried beyond the official report. But I would just get new materials. It's one of the worst locations that you could ever pick anyway. And so I would just pick new ones, but but the amount of material that's needed gets smaller all the time. And the accuracies of these are better. And the best way to refute the carbon dating is to use AMS technology to determine whether it was irradiated with neutrons, the number of neutrons, and its real date, and, and all those other things can all be done at an AMS. It's the same technology. You're not trying to get them to accept a new technology, but I'm all for the development of new technologies as well. Awesome. All right, cool. So I, I want to turn it to Hugh then to give his kind of opening probably about 10 minutes or less, whatever you want to do. Uh, but yeah, can I, I'm assuming you're going to be trying to establish that, look, no, the Shroud of Turin and the Shroud Man is inconsistent with a first century Jew and the historical Jesus. So go ahead and give your opening case there, Hugh. Yes. Well, <clears throat> gosh, well, I like Mark. I didn't know we were going to do this formally like, uh, well, I, but we did do it once before. So I, I suppose I gave it a, I gave it a, a, a few minutes thought. It, it occurred to me that uh, if we were going to concentrate on two uh, aspects of the Shroud studies, which are Jewish burial practices and the anatomical accuracy of the image, we must try, I think we, are, we need to understand that, that in order to show that it's authentic, it must adhere to certain known Jewish burial practices in such a way that a medieval artist couldn't have known that. And similarly, uh, to its anatomical precision must be such that it would be sensible to say no artists of the medieval times could do that so the fact that somebody goes oh look the, the the shroud man's got blood well yes people bled even in medieval times what you have to demonstrate is that the blood markings on the shroud are so precise that they could not have been done by uh, by the the imagination of, of, of an artist uh, and i think that and the same similarly with the, with the burial practices to say, oh, well, Jews were buried in shrouds and the shroud is a shroud, therefore they must be the same, is, is not an adequate uh, identification of the one with the other. If you were to say that Jews were often buried in long, thin sheets in which they were placed with their feet at one end and their head in the middle, then that would be a little bit more uh, conforming with the way the shroud is. Um, but I guess Mark near will be hard put to do that um just just throwing it out there um i i i think that's all i don't want to go deeply into the radiocarbon dating um obviously 
Uh, I think what the what the uh, Nature Report finally came up with was 12 dates representing 12 separate little samples. Now, each separate little sample may have been tested uh, up to 10 times. I think there were at least uh, 120 uh, and possibly more different dates which came from the individual sputtering of every single thing because the, the, the shroud is, the sample is converted into carbon. The carbon is put into a little sort of circular chamber which goes round in a circle and uh, it's, it's a, a, a attacked with, um, I don't know, something, I forgot, I forgot what it is now, which, which spits the carbon-14 out. And that goes round and round and round and round 10 times in order to get um, uh, an average reading. So the, uh, all radiocarbon dates, regardless of whether they're the, the shroud or, or a piece of bone found in a, in a uh, Mexican cave, they all uh, have to be tested multiple times. And then what you come up with is the average reading. I do take on board uh, Mark's idea that um, the under normal statistical processes, uh, yeah, sure, they come out with the fact that the Oxford results are um, statistically not compatible, not necessarily compatible, I should say, with the uh, with the other two, which are compatible with each other. Um, the of course the um, nature people noticed that, and they wondered what it could be that made these results incompatible. Now they were fairly certain. What they didn't know was the order in which the samples had come. That was derived much later when uh, people went back to uh, the people who cut the samples and said which sample was given to who. And then they, then they could work out that there was a gradient. But unless you knew the order of the samples, your three separate readings couldn't, um, couldn't be shown to be a gradient because it could have been that the middle one, uh, the, middle, the middle reading could have been either, could have been one of the extremes. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. But I, I will say that I agree totally with Mark that if we radiocarbon date almost any fragment from the shroud, it doesn't even have to be from the shroud. It could be from the Holland cloth, of which, of course, is totally preserved. The vast thing which has no um, uh, relevance, technical relevance to Jesus at all. We know that the Holland cloth isn't 2000 years old, but all of them should be vastly enhanced as to their carbon-14 content. I'm totally confident that when this happens, it'll be found that they're exactly the same as the original dates. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. So yeah, th at this point, uh, I want to turn it to Mark Neer. I know he's he's got a couple of lectures, so he's going to be a little bit longer. He's going to be about 20 minutes or so for his opening. So That's okay. Mark, I'm going to have breakfast. <laughs> Take it away, Mark. Uh, I'm interested and I, I can't leave. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, go over to you, Mark Neer. Just one question for Hugh, if I may. Um, when do you think the shroud is dated by then? And your best guess of when you think how old is this shroud? My best guess is, is currently about 1290. 1290, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I think before 1300. But, uh, oh, okay, it. okay. Well, um, I'm not sure I fully understood exactly where we were going on this, um, but uh, so I have two areas, but one's a longer one, and one's a shorter one. Um, so uh, this this first one that I thought about was uh, the historical Jewish pers 
perspective about uh, prohibition of images. So um, I thought the Jewish perspective could help people because I personally have encountered people who are vehement about the fact that this is an image, you know, and that we should worship images or relics or anything like of that nature. So um, I was focused on the Jewish perspective of that, and I am Jewish. And so um, I guess I could start with that maybe. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I've been, I, like I said, I've encountered Christians who are, and they're very sincere about this. They were vehement and vociferous about how the shroud was a violation of God's commandments, forbidding images and relics. So, um, so here, uh, with the with the Jewish perspective, we have the Jewish Hebrewism and the Jewish Hebrew doublet. Um, so in Exodus chapter twenty, it says, "You shall not make for yourself the carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or." that is in the water under the earth. However, the, the Hebrew scriptures follow up, follow up such verses with what is called a Jewish Hebrew doublet. And that's a restatement of the information, um, which helps to clarify and define the intended interpretation of the prior statement. So this Jewish perspective helps people that have that problem about relics and images. For example, um, in Exodus, Shemot, chapter 20, it says, um, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So that, so the Hebrew scripture uh, talks about not worshiping. It says, uh, well, I don't have the quotation there. Maybe that's, anyway, um, so anyway, one, what we often find in these Jewish things is the Hebrew double where it follows up with a statement that clarifies the meaning. And, and it's called the Hebrew doublet. And it says uh, in Exodus 20, after it forbids this kind of thing, it says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So that's that's what the complaint is in the scriptures. Another example is Leviticus chapter 26. It says, you shall not make a carved image or a sacred pillar to rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land. And then we find the Hebrew doublet to bow down to it. That's what it's talking about. So it's not the, the worship of images or relics that's a violation. No, I'm sorry. It's, it's the worship of the images or relics that's the violation, not the possession of an image or relic. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall not make, any, make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then comes the Hebrew doublet. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So that's the clarification of the meaning here. Uh, another example, um, Moses was God's highly esteemed servant. And what did God himself command Moses to do when the Israelites were dying from snake bites? He commanded Moses to make a graven image of a snake, a graven image of a snake. In Numbers 21, then the Lord spoke to Moshe, Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. What was God up to? Was God trying to tempt his people to sin by having Moses make a graven image of a snake and telling people to worship it? Of course not. So having a graven image 
is not a sin, but worshiping it would be a sin. Many years later, some Israelites did begin worshiping that um, snake on the pole, and so King Hezekiah had it destroyed. <laughs> uh, later, Messiah referred to this very situation, and here's what Messiah said about it. As Moses lifted up the serpent, which was a graven image, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Messiah was declaring that the lesson of the graven serpent image pointed prophetically to him. Just like the serpent was raised on the pole, Messiah would be lifted up on the cross to bear the curse of our sins, so that just like the Israelites with Moses, we also could find salvation from the curse of death and obtain eternal eternal life. In short, Messiah was declaring that the purpose and lesson of the serpent image on the pole was prophetic. It was what is called the Hebrew tabnit, a type or model which pointed to Messiah. Does, does this matter apply only to relics or does it also apply to graven images? Here again, we find another profound example. God himself commanded his highly esteemed servant Moses to make a graven image of two golden cherubim, a graven image of two golden cherubim having wings which would cover above the mercy seat on top of the most holy Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the most holy of holies room of the tabernacle. This was the most sacred place on planet Earth. In the holy of holies, God himself would speak directly with Moses between the two cherubim graven images, which God had commanded to be placed upon the Ark of the Testimony, which is the most holy place on planet Earth. Clearly, God did not consider his graven image of the cherubim to be a sin. What about relics like the Shroud of Turin? Surely we would be forbidden to worship a relic. But if a relic is not worshipped, is having a relic a sin? Is there a situation in the Bible which clarifies this matter of relics such as the Shroud of Turin? Yes, none other than God himself commanded Moses to preserve three relics. Namely, the golden jar containing the sample of manna, which God provided to feed the Israelites during their travels out of Egypt, the relic of Aaron's rod that budded, and the relic of the tablets of the covenant. And where did God command Moses to place these relics? God told Moses to place these relics inside the most holy place on planet Earth, namely inside the Ark of the Covenant located within the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle the most holy place on planet Earth. Clearly, God did not consider the possession of relics to be a sin, so long as a person does not worship it. Bottom line, by means of Hebraisms and Hebrew doublets employed within Torah, the possession of relics such as the Shroud of Turn are not a sin, so long as it is not worship. So anyway, I thought I'd just share that. I, I knew that we were going to talk about he, uh, Jewish perspective and, th and all, and since I have personally encountered on a few occasions, some people that were, I, I give them credit for being very sincere about this. They really, they really care about God and they're convinced that, you know, it's worshiping a relic or an image. You're violating God to do that. And they were very vehement about it. But uh, hopefully for some people that might have that concern, maybe this uh, Jewish perspective opens and helps to answer that question. So, um, Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, did, did you have your second lecture re related to the historicity? Can, can we, is this consistent yeah. with uh, the first century Jewish historical context um, and the historical Jesus even? Well, uh, so yeah, I do have a, another 
talk here, and uh, and this uh, deals with um, well. Um, anyway, it's a little bit longer. I, if you're ready, I could go on with it, I guess. But um, so um, what this deals with is how the Bible, uh, rabbinic and historic uh, sources, the shroud and typology all work together to forecast and confirm the date and the time of day of Messiah's redemptive crucifixion and resurrection. So, um, so it's stunning to discover that the historic Passover in Egypt prophetically forecast the precise date on the Jewish calendar when Messiah would be executed, namely the 14th day of the Jewish month Aviv. And how did the Passover predict this? We find it recorded in the 12th chapter of the book of Shemot, Exodus. It says, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Your lamb shall be without blemish, and you shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. And that's from Exodus chapter 12. Um, the first Jewish month of the year in biblical times occurred when the new moon was sighted and the barley crop was simultaneously found to be in the stage of Aviv ripeness, which is March or April. Thus, the Passover was sacrificed on the 14th day of this first month of the year called the month Aviv. The commandment furthermore specifies the specific time of the day when the Passover was to be sacrificed. And that, as it turned out, resolved into an impressive prophetic forecast. It presaged the precise time of the day when the Messiah would be executed, the precise time of the day. Not only the date, the 14th day of Aviv, and it, it indicated this 1,500 years in advance. And here's a quote from Exodus chapter 12. Then the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill it, that is the Passover lamb, at twilight. The Hebrew expression here as twilight is Bain Ha'abah. It's an extremely unique phrase within the Hebrew scriptures. It literally means between the two evenings. According to Torah Moshe, the law instruction of Moses, the Jewish day begins after sunset at evening and extends until the close of the next sunset at evening. The Hebrew expression Bain Ha'abarim between two evenings was interpreted by the Pharisees in a matter in which when the sun initially begins to descend is called the first evening and the actual sunset is called the second evening. The Bain Ha'abarim would be the time between the two evenings. So first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus was born in 37 AD CE, just a few years after the crucifixion of Yeshua. He documents that the Jewish priests during the first century understood this expression, Bain Ha'abarim, between the evenings to be the time between the ninth and the eleventh hour of the day, according to Jewish first century reckoning of time, which would be 3 to 5 p.m. according to our modern time. And here's a um, quote from um, Josephus. Flavius Josephus, he was born 10 years after the crucifixion of the Messiah of Christ. So these high priests, upon the coming of their feast, which is called Passover, when they slay their sacrifices from the ninth hour to the eleventh hour, and uh, 
so there he's indicating the time when the Passover was to be sacrificed between the ninth and the 11th hour, which would be 3 to 5 p.m. according to our time. At this point, we begin to trace how all this played out when Yeshua was crucified. The book of Luke reported the time of day when Yeshua actually died. So what I'm saying is all these different things are very, very pinpoint exactly what's going on. Now, it was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two and crying with a loud voice, Yeshua said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So his final words were very strong and loud. And then he died right after that. He, it seems like he was in control of that, in my opinion. The, the, the text clearly identifies it was the ninth hour, 3 p.m. by our modern time and reckoning when Yeshua died. This was the Bain Ha'abarim, the ninth hour of the day of the first century. Jewish historian Flavius Josephus reported that they would begin to slay the Passover sacrifice at the temple. It confirms that Yeshua died at the very hour, the very hour, the ninth hour, prophetically foreshadowed by the Passover, when they would begin to slay the Passover lambs of the Jewish at the Jewish temple. Uh, significantly, it was the same hour that matched when the flower Caparis Egyptia found on the shroud was picked to prepare for burial. The buds of this flower begin to gradually bloom open about midday and become fully open about a half hour before sunset. Once the flower is picked, the buds remain in that stage of opening unless water is added. The degree of opening of this flower's buds is found on the shroud indicates that it was picked to gather floral preparations for the burial upon death about 3 p.m. modern time, which would be the ninth hour according to first century Jewish reckoning when Christ died. However, what was the date? Is there any evidence in, available confirming which date it was on the Jewish calendar when Yeshua was executed? Did the crucifixion occur on the 14th day of the first month of Eve, the date of the Passover was to be sacrificed? The ancient Jewish Talmud has a tractate called Sanhedrin. This tractate recorded information from the Jewish ruling body of the very first century called the Sanhedrin. It was the Sanhedrin that presided over the Jewish trial of Yeshua. The oldest surviving complete B Talmud manuscript called the Munich Talmud reports in tractate Sanhedrin 43a that Yeshua of Nazareth was executed on the, quote, Eve of the Passover. That would be the 14th day of the month of Eve when the Passover was to be sacrificed. The ancient B. Talmud records the following in tractate Sanhedrin 43a. And this is what it says. On the eve of the Passover, they hung by crucifixion, Yeshu the Notzeri, the Nazarene. And that's from uh, Talmud Sanhedrin 43a, manuscript Munich. The above Hebrew word Notsri is a variant of the Hebrew word Natsrati, meaning Nazarene. With this record from ancient times, we have historic Jewish documentation passed down from the Sanhedrin itself, the very ruling body that presided over the Jewish trial of Yeshua. It clearly states that Yeshua the Nazarene was executed on the eve of the Passover. Thus, both the date on the Jewish calendar, the 14th day of the month of Eve, and the hour of the day, the ninth hour, according to first century Jewish reckoning of Yeshua's crucifixion death, are both authenticated 
from two of the most highly esteemed Jewish sources of antiquity, namely the writings of first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus and the Sanhedrin tractate of the Jewish B. Talmud. And by the way, on this document, there is evidence of unsuccessful efforts to delete this reference from the Talmud. <laughs> but so we can see the mess up there, but they weren't successful in deleting it. <laughs> um, okay. So anyway, um, in uh, Exodus uh, 12, verse 6, it says, You shall keep it, the Passover lamb, until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill it at twilight. <clears throat> One of the floral species identified on the shroud by Drs. Wanger, Danin, Baruch is Caparis egyptia. An unusual trait of the flower is that its buds begin to gradually open at midday and, and become fully open about a half hour before sunset. The Caparis egyptia flowers found on the enhanced photos of the shroud reveal by the stage of budding that the flowers have been picked at about 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. modern time by the stage of opening of the flower. The process of opening the buds of Caparis egyptia ceases once the flower is picked, so it captured the time of day when they started to prepare for burial. This was the very hour when Yeshua died on the cross when such flowers would be picked to prepare for his burial. In addition, the wilted condition of the flower on the shroud indicates that the flower had been in a state of wilting for a couple of days when the image was formed. In other words, what you see on the shroud is not the moment of this execution, but three days later when the image would have been created on the shroud. So at that point, they have this image on the shroud of Caparis Egyptia, but it's, it's not only showing the degree of opening, which which is indicating the time of day when it was picked, prepared for burial, but also there you can see how it's how the effect of three days without water has affected that image flower. So it's indicating that amount of time. Altogether, this evidence corresponds to the time of day when preparations would have begun for the burial of Yeshua, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., when Caparis Egyptia flowers were picked and the state of wilting of the flowers displayed on the shroud provides a general indication as to how much time had elapsed between the burial until the time when the image was formed on the shroud, two or three days. The pollen from these flowers effectively provided a geographical map and time chronology. Dr. Avinam Danin, eminent Israeli botanist and acknowledged world leader on the an expert on the flora of Israel states that the presence of Gundalia turniforti pollen grains on the shroud proves that the shroud came into some sort of contact with the plant during the time of its blooming, and that marks it as February to May. Dr. Dean adds, referencing his database of over 90,000 sites of plant distributions in Israel, that the assemblage of certain plant pollens and their, um, just a second here, <laughs> and their corresponding images on the shroud best fits one specific geographical place in the entire world, namely the narrow geographical region embracing 10 to 20 kilometers, 16 to 32 miles from east to west of Jerusalem. Dr. Donin also pointed out that the season when these variety of plants are in bloom releasing their pollen is March through April, precisely the months of the Jewish Passover. In summation, the total, the totality of pollen and other evidence on the shrouds provides physical evidence from the shroud itself of 
one, a specific geographical location of the world, the narrow geographical region, 10 to 20 kilometers, 16 to 32 miles east and west of Jerusalem, where such variety of Israeli flowers, Caparis Egyptia, are known uniquely to be found. Number two, it indicates a limited time of the year, March, April, the only months when the Passover occurs and the only months when the combined variety of flowers of Israeli flowers are in bloom, releasing their pollen. Number three, a specific hour of the day when the death occurred and when preparations would begin for the burial, 3 to 4 p.m., a time indicated by the state of opening of the buds of the flower Caparis Egyptia when it was picked to prepare for burial. Fourth, the duration of elapsed time between the burial until the resurrection formation of the shroud image, a couple days, indicated by the degree of wilting of the flower images. They've been picked, you know, they've had three days to suffer from being picked. Five, evidence of what would be the thorn plant used for the crown cap of thorns, Gundalia terniforti. Among historical records, only one person was ever reported to be punished with the crown of thorns, namely the mocking of Yeshua of Nazareth as the king of the Jews. So the, so the scriptures with the shroud prophesied and the scripture combined with the shroud prophesied and confirmed the date on the Jewish calendar, the hour of the day when the Messiah would die, and the shroud bears physical evidence confirming that it is precise that, that is precisely what happened. So um, okay. that's uh, the thoughts that I had there mm -hmm. is um, how much detail there is to pinpoint these five points, you know, and, and it's found on the shroud. It's found from the floral images um, and, and all these other things that I had listed here. So, all right, cool. So, so thanks so much for your guys opening speeches. I, I want to kind of move into the informal dialogue part here. And I, I've got some of my own questions. I'll save most of that for the end. But just to kick things off, I just want to kind of get your guys take because in none of your guys presentations, um, I note that some shroud skeptics will uh, not just point to inaccuracies in the burial and stuff. We'll, we'll get to that later. But uh, are you guys all agreed that there is nothing about the appearance of the shroud man himself that would rule out either the historical Jesus or first century Jewish? Like, you know, some shroud skeptics will say, oh, he's too tall. That's a medieval man. Or he's got long hair. That's inconsistent. So um, in terms of the shroud man's appearance himself, is there anything that would rule him out as being the historical Jesus or? Yeah. Are you guys all agreed on that? Uh, well, um, I think there are lots of um, we can't possibly say, I don't think we could say that the man on the shroud is typical of anything. But then in any population of any group of people, there are some people who are not typical. <laughs> so, you know, the, the fact that Jesus is or is not of average Jewish height of a first century Jew is neither here nor there. So there were tall Jews and small Jews, and as there are now, I dare say, um, to a certain extent. You know whether he had long hair or whether his hair was typical of of a, of a Jew of, of the first century. We don't really know. The only there the, the are vanishingly few portraits um, that can be found of of that sort of thing. And I suppose the nearest is probably the drawing of the synagogue at uh, Dura Europa, which has got a whole lot of Jews all standing around, and they all have short curly hair and no beards. But uh, again, that's 200 miles away and uh, perhaps 100 years later. 
and fashions seem to change quite fast from that point of view. Um, I think the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 brought about a fantastic change in, obviously, in, in the history of, of Judea and, and the Jews, but it, it also had all sorts of subtle changes in terms of their culture as well. So getting bef uh, what the exact culture was before the um, the fall of Jerusalem is extremely difficult. I don't know if Mark Neer would agree with that. Perhaps he would. Yeah, what, what's uh, Mark, Mark Neer going? What's your take on the, on the Shroud Man's appearance? Can, can we rule out the historical Jesus in any way? Or? Well, of course, one thing we find is that he has a long ponytail down the back. <laughs> And uh, my understanding is that that was um, a difference that many Jews had compared to the Romans. The Romans were clean shaven and short hair, and the Jewish culture was more along that line. You know, that's what I've read. I, 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 I don't read. think there's any evidence to support that of okay. any kind at all. <laughs> okay. uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to learn some if anybody had any, but no. Uh, it's just no what I read. Who had a ponytail at all, ever. Okay. All right, Mark, Mark Antinacci, do you, do you have anything to say on this this specific? Would, wouldn't the lack of uh, a description of somebody throughout, say, the Roman or Greek ages mean something? Uh, you know, just a casual men mention that a man had a ponytail or his hair was parted in the middle and down to his shoulders. Um, just, I, I, I don't know. But I mean... Um, uh, you could see you could at least say it was very uncommon because you don't know of any instance where there was over you know hundreds of years yeah gotcha okay and in, in terms of him being too tall because i remember uh mark mark antinacci there uh, in your book you kind of mentioned that there's actually been findings in galilee where they find the bones where he was the same size as the the shroud man so he he is typical actually so oh yeah there was a syrian i believe he was a syrian who was uh, six feet two uh that's the tallest one that i remember but um there, there was others um that are about five nine or some four l's i think is is the yeah. okay John Lynn, a beautiful guy who's no longer with us um one time went over some stuff about that with me in rome in, in 2000, it was a sidebar, and um, uh, he said he's about five nine and a half, something like that, between five nine and five nine and a half, something like that. And he got into the, you know, when the cloth, if the cloth collapsed, there would be some distortion and make you look a little longer. And he factored all that in, and I was just trying to understand what he was saying, you know. <laughs> awesome. and, uh, but Fair. that's what he said. Fair enough. Yeah, okay. the, the, um, the, the point about the Jewish burials is got the, the we never find we never find a dead Jewish person or, or indeed a living Jewish person from the first century, and they tend to be the height of people tends to be reconstructed by measuring the length of the femur. Um, but the trouble is you can't measure the length of the femur of the man in the shroud because the whole thing is too blurred to actually pinpoint this is where it starts and this is where it stops. Uh, would give you a distance, probably an error of about 10 centimeters either way. So uh, that, it's not really very helpful. You, you always put that word approximately in front of. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 All right, cool. So, so I'm going to say the rest of my questions are kind of with respect to the, the historicity of the burial procedure. So I'm going to save that 
to the end. At this point, I'm going to open it up to you guys to kind of probe each other based on your opening cases. So I'll start. Yeah, Mark, Mark Antinacci. I'll, oh, Mark, Mir, are you? Well, I was I was just going to mention real briefly um, <laughs> that uh, remember Goliath, we have the story of him. And I think he was like nine cubits. I forget exactly. But uh, so it was possible, even though you would think people from more ancient times, maybe not being as healthy and having as great a nutrition as like we have today would be a lot shorter. But um, there's an example of someone who, who in that very time was very tall. <laughs> yeah. Just the, I, I know I'm not the guest, but just the piggyback. I mean, it, it's a misnomer. I mean, people in ancient times were way healthier than people in the medieval yeah. times. They, the medieval people were way shorter and stuff, right? Because they were malnourished compared uh -huh. to. In the yeah, I, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, some some people were, and and others weren't. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. You really go out on a limb there, you know. <laughs> and look at Henry VIII doesn't look at all malnourished when you see him. He looks very well fed in all the pictures I've seen of Henry VIII. And um, it was a uh, most of the medieval knights were uh, you know were famous for the fact that they could vault onto their horses, and uh, things like that it means they were quite fit and uh, perhaps not as, as skinny as you might think. Okay. All right, cool. So, so Mark Neer, I'm, I'm going to get at this one. I'm going to give you the reins. Uh, you've heard Mark Antinacci's and Hugh Ferry's openings there. Is, is there anything in their openings that you wanted to kind of discuss with them for a little bit before we, uh, I give it to the next person? Um, well, you know, um, not really that comes to mind right now, right. That I can think of. Um, Fair enough. I appreciate all the research. You know, I've I've read Mark Antonacci's books and I've gotten a lot of a lot out of that. So I really admire what he's done. And uh and Hugh too, I know he's he's very knowledgeable in what he talks about. So I I, I recommend my academia.edu papers. Okay. Yeah. Utterly great. Academia, okay. Yeah. It's on academia.edu is this the... Yes, yes. Uh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Like okay. lots of people who can't be bothered to get there. Okay. All right. Place. Now I know where to find something. <laughs> okay, cool. So, so Mark Antinacci, now I'll hand the reins over to you. you having heard Hugh and Mark Neer's uh, um, openings, is there anything you want to probe and have a, a bit of a just back and forth with them on? Yeah, I wanted to uh, ask Hugh. Uh, I realize that you talk about the um, that rotating. Um, I think they put uh, in carbon dating when they make the original measurements. Yeah, they put the graphite in this uh, kind of circuit. I'll hold my hand up where you can in a kind of a circular uh, format where yeah. it takes some graphite, which is carbon um, ground up, I suppose, or burnt, and and they take. Yeah each little spot yeah. and you really don't know if those uh, i think there's six in, in it varies uh, from machine to machine yeah it can be up to 10 or 12 i think and yeah. you don't know where they could be taking it all from one little spot and put it in six times or they could have taken six little tiny spots and put them in there no, 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 no. That, that that's not how it works. <clears throat> each, well, I each, mean, in the report, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no. I mean, if you read the um, all the the documents that were released by the British Museum, uh, you can see quite clearly what little holes got what uh, deposits of carbon. 
because some were, were uh, are carbon from the sample, and then some are from um, control samples, and some are fr from samples which are guaranteed not to have any carbon in at all. So they all act as um, checks on each other. And then this little thing goes clicking round, and each thing, it's called a sputter. Each thing is sputtered for about 10 seconds, and then it goes on round, and it goes on round, and it goes on, and it does that for about 10 times. Um, and then you take the whole thing out. It, you could go on forever. It's it, just a question until, in the end, you burnt all the carbon away, and you're starting to bash away at the copper substrate. So okay. that, that, that's how I'll try and find, I'll try and find if, some documentation if I can. If, say, uh, you were taking a sample of the shroud, and, and uh, um, you're, you're taking your initial uh, readings. When they put it in that spigot, is it just a shroud sample or do they have other? Uh, oh, they have lots of, lots of controls. So supposing you've got 10 little, little circles in a row, mm -hmm. something like uh, one and six mm -hmm. may be blanks. In other words, they, they have no carbon-14 in them because they derive from limestone or something like that. And then two and seven might be your shroud sample. And then three and eight might be a control sample from something that you know the date of very well. And then four and three or wherever I've got to. And, and so you've got, a, you've got an interesting variety. Maybe there'll be three shroud samples and three control samples and three uh, other samples. And uh, they're all listed in some of the documentation, which uh, am I able to share a screen at all, um, Dale? Yeah, yeah. I, I, won't do it, I won't do it now. I've got to try and find it first. But okay. if I can find it, I'll, I'll show you the uh, how it works out. Fair enough. Okay. Well, and Mark Antinacci, just while he's looking that up, um, anything? did you have any comments or anything on Mark Neer's case for the historicity of, of the Shroud to the first century Jewish context or...? No, I, I was listening, um, and um, I, I don't dispute. I mean, there's there's some things that uh, cannot be entirely proven. There's always that, but on the whole, I, it's 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 seems to be an authentic Jewish um, customs have been followed um, in every way, and and I see a consistency um, with that. Um, yeah. And it's quite extensive, and it gets beyond me, really. He he seems to know this better than anyone I've ever come across. Um, yeah, yeah. I was in in the, I was noticing in the live chat there that you have a fan there, Mark. Near uh, uh, the God Talk um, was saying that your book was one of the best. Um, hold on, let me see if I can. One of the can't best. Hold that up while you're saying it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There's your little. It's called the Turn Shroud: Physical Evidence of Life After Death? Question mark with insights from a Jewish perspective. So that there you go. You, you have you found your uh, your source there, Hugh? Or not yet? Not yet? Not yet? It's on this computer somewhere, so it'll okay. it'll turn up. What well, can I just ask, Hugh? What, what I was going to say is, um, they know which which graphite is in which oh, yeah. which spigot. Um, but what I'm saying is that, um, and, and I can understand why they want to put controls in there to, to check the equipment and everything like that. Um, 
when when they and I understand that they in essence take the average of those um, samples. Uh, say they're doing a shroud sample, and if it's it's say there's four out of ten or whatever the number, they may take an average of those at the time. I was under the impression that um, the labs did not reveal um, the locations where the graphite came from, that it could have been a one part of, you know, the samples are so small, but it could have been uh, the upper right corner or the middle or lower left corner or whatever, but they don't, they don't detail that. And I'm no. not. No, you're, right. you're, you're quite right about that. Yeah. And. Um, um, but I'm trying to say yes. I, I realize that they average them. They take a they what is it's it's yeah. technically called a mean date or whatever. But for that first independent one, and they may you know all the labs do this. I can share the screen now. You, you and and you can average those two, those three, those four, whatever together. But that number you get, if it is not homogenous with the other numbers that are taking, if you average them again, you're going to get a distortion in the in the result. Now, if, if they're all homogenous, if they're heterogenetic, that's where you get your distortion. And you look of the eight of the uh, of the samples there, they get rid of the six youngest and the and at least the five oldest. All right, cool. So Bring it down. No, I mean I've I've analysed this quite extensively in one of my blog posts at medievalshroud.com, recommended to everybody. Um, but obviously, if you make an average, then you uh, uh, yes, the 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 upper and lower values are, are not included in the average, but they are included in the errors that you that you describe. So if you've got 91, 92, 93. You say that the average is 92, but that doesn't mean that you've discarded the 91 and the 93 because you say the average is 92 plus or minus one. There and if you've got 95, 100 and 105, you go, ah, I found the average. It's 100, but I haven't discarded the other two. I say it's 100 plus or minus five. They're not shown to anyone, not to yeah. the to, not to the other analyzing institution in Turin. And they were supposed oh, yeah, to. Yeah, they are. The, the, the raw, the raw printouts, the raw were... printouts from Arizona are, 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 are readily available to the public. I've got them on my computer. Yes, yes, that's that's because they were discovered, but they're not in the official report. They weren't shared with Turin. They, they, now, let me finish. Let me finish. Uh, there, you, when you say they didn't discard them, they, they, they kept them out of the official report and never said them. Only was it confirmed when Casabianca filed the lawsuit uh, under the um, Open Records Act yeah. in the UK. Only then did it know for sure. Um, Remy Van Helst was the one that, that said it, and I was able, uh, Art Lynn, the, guy, the scientist I work with, he was able to get a copy of a letter from Donahue that confirmed that, that what Remy Health said was true. And, and that's why I published those new dates before, before the Casabianca report came out. And, um, but no, they didn't share it. They, they never revealed it to anyone. 
uh, including the owners or the custodians of the shroud. Um, they, 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 they all but discarded it, and and they, they, and they only work with the second round of averaging, and that's where you get your distortions. Um, so, well, so let you, so no. Push you out. I'll let you. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. I'll let you give a quick response to that. But I also want to to make sure we fit in the part because you mentioned in your speech about there was inaccurate burial procedures. So I, I want to make sure. Yeah, we have well, very much so. I, I, yeah. I'll throw in. I, I, can I just ask Mark Nia, Um Well, I mean, I can show you this thing on the screen if you want, but or, or we'll leave that for the time being and, and go on to, to Mark Nia. Um I thought the Passover was the 14th of Nissan. And you said uh, Eve, Aviv. was it? <clears throat> Aviv, yeah. Aviv, Aviv. It's what, the same. The it's the same. All <laughs> oh, right. So why do some people say Nissan and some people say Aviv? Well, this, well, the scriptures okay. in Hebrew say Aviv. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> I, I've never heard of it, so uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm educated well, in that respect. It's 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 another word of expressing it because uh, it's the uh, maturation of the Aviv um, uh, barley harvest oh, mm. that um, indicates the time of year for the month, and the month is called Aviv. Yeah, it, as well as oh, Nisan. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> about superior knowledge okay yeah. so all right cool so so while um we're kind of probing hugh's case hugh made this reference to inaccurate burial procedures so that do you, i want to turn it over to you guys all three of you to have kind of a discussion like are, are there burial procedures evident from the, sh the way the shroud man is portrayed and stuff that would rule out a first century jewish state or jesus what what do you guys make on that front well can I just I'll throw some ideas in which you're very welcome to contradict. Uh, only one shroud, Second Temple period shroud, has ever been discovered, uh, assuming that the shroud isn't it. Uh, and that's the famous Akaldama shroud, which wrapped a leper who was uh, unusually left in his loculus of the tomb and not taken out and put into uh, an ossuary like all his friends and relations. And the reason for that is probably because he was leprous uh, and they decided that having got rid of the body, they weren't going to unseal it in case they caught leprosy again a year later. However, that shroud was very badly decomposed. Uh, it was made of wool and it was made of lots of different pieces of wool. I'm not sure it wasn't even in the form of a shirt or something like that. Now, of course, that is one single example. And we certainly can't say that all Jewish shrouds were like this and therefore the Turin shroud isn't one. On the other hand, we certainly can't say that the Turin Shroud is typical of Jewish Shrouds because we've only got one and it's not typical of that. The other thing that I wrote a, a paper on, MedievalShroud.com, folks. Uh, uh, no, yes, uh, no, the Academia.com, the Medieval Shroud number three, was on the fact this the, the Gospel of John mentions myrrh and aloes. And try as I might... There is absolutely no reference to either myrrh or aloes. In fact, there are contraindications of myrrh and aloes um, used in Jewish burials. And for John to say this is the custom of the Jews, um, I think from a Second Temple period point of view is completely wrong. And I suspect that whoever compiled the Gospel of John, it is often thought to be that it was done in uh, somewhere like Ephesus or something like that. And certainly after the sack of Jerusalem. And quite possibly in Ephesus, there was an Egyptian tradition in which people were packed with lots of spices and wrapped up like a mummy 
uh, and buried like that. And I think that John may simply have thought that that was how it happened um, in Jesus's case. Uh, because, because there's absolutely no way that either myrrh or aloes were associated with Jewish burials. Now, go on then. Let's ask somebody to attack. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, um, there's a, a very variety of scriptures that could talk about um, <clears throat> the association of myrrh and aloes um, from that from that period, and it's actually in Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, for example, um, King Zedekiah, Zekiyahu, after his death. Um, it says that, yet hear the word of the Lord, O Ze Zekiyahu, king of Yehuda, Melech HaYehuda. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not buy, die by the sword, you will die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you. And they will lament for you, Lord, uh, whoops, anyway, um, Alas, Lord Zekiyahu, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. So um, another example is uh, in Devrei Hayamin Beit, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 16. And here they're using the myrrh and aloes, and this is why they're using it. They're not using it for the burial. No. So Esau slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign, and they buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David, David. And they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, blended with perfumer arts. And they made a very great fire for him. Uh, and then there's another case in Second Chronicles chapter 21. And it states that King Jehoram's people made no funeral fire in his honor as they had for his predecessors. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried, but not in the tomb of the kings. So what we're finding then is that the myrrh and aloes weren't necessarily used for the burial. They were used as a tribute fire. So why did Noctimon Nicodemus bring 70 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes? And we don't find it on the shroud. Well, that's why, because I believe he was bringing that myrrh and aloes in such a huge quantity. They weren't planning to bury him in myrrh and aloes, which they could have with 100 pounds. They were planning to offer that fire as a tribute to him. In fact, we have an, another example around the time of Christ when that was done, that uh, for Gamaliel I, uh, he was president of the great Sanhedrin. And in 54 AD, they did the same thing for Gamaliel. They, uh, they burned um, 80 to 90 pounds of spices for Gamaliel. And, and this was done in 54 AD. So that was right around the time of Christ. So it was still a tradition even back then to bring Myrnalis not to bury the body or anoint him, but to burn as a tribute to him. You keep saying Myrnalis. The word myr doesn't occur in any of those cases. Well, I'm just going by what the English <laughs> text nor, so, nor, nor the word aloes. But, so, but it's significant. But, but what, what, is, what is the term then that you're saying? It actually is if it's not myrrh. Well, it just says spices. Spices, yeah, okay. But what I'm specifically looking for is that for a start, myrrh is nearly always, um, in the Old Testament at any rate, uh, mixed as a liquid. Sacred oil for anointing, anointing uh, include, include uh, myrrh. 
Uh, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. This is uh, Exodus 30. Liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and sweet-smelling cinnamon, and 250 aromatic cane, 500 of cassia. And I saw um, more anti knots you wanted to, to come in. So after you finish up here. Yeah. Oh, so, no, okay. Uh, I know. I'm familiar with every mention of myrrh in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and every mention of aloes. Which, of course, uh, if you happen to be an, uh, uh, an Ahmadiyya Muslim, aloes is primarily associated and always has been with healing, not with dead bodies. You never put aloes on a dead body. Anyway, over to you, Mark. Well, no, well, um, you, you, you seem to be questioning the accuracy of John's references. And if no. That's, no. What, I'm, what I'm questioning is that, well, I'm, I'm questioning that this is anything to do with the custom of the Jews. I think he's wrong. It wasn't the custom of first century Jews to be buried with myrrh and aloes, or even, as far as we know, with uh, uh, with uh, flames and and, uh, and and fires and things. Well, sure that's if that's so, then the shroud is not violating Jewish burial customs. Because? Because it doesn't line up with John. But you're saying if John's wrong on that particular point, then the shroud can't be challenged because it's it's inconsistent with the gospel of John. <laughs> oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> no, that's that, but that's 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 not the reason. It's just that uh, the uh, the uh, the shroud cannot be said to match Jewish burial customs. Is all I'm saying. Now, that's not that doesn't mean that it isn't rich, uh, it isn't um, authentic uh, by itself, because as uh, as we know, uh, the burial of Jesus was extremely unusual. Um, it's, it was very unusual to bury anybody who'd been crucified uh, anyway. Um, it was extremely unusual to associate any kind of myrrh or aloes with them. Um, and it was even more unusual to come back two days later to carry out some anointing, which I've seen. There's a YouTube of a very cross Jewish rabbi insisting that it's completely impossible that women would have gone back to anoint a body that had been dead in the tomb for three days. Um, but I mean, that was that was a one particular rabbi's point of view. Well, it would have been a day and a half, and it's the quickest they could get back because it would have been dark. Oh, there, there, as I say, um, if you were to say that uh, Jesus was buried in entirely exceptional circumstances, I'd go for that, but yeah. I really won't go for according to the custom of the Jews. Well, I always thought that the argument that the that the, the the shroud is not consistent with Jewish burial customs because it violates John. But if you're saying that John's incorrect, then then the shroud is not violating any customs. No, 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 Mark's examples shows that that they they did use myrrh and aloes with with royal figures with mm. uh, kings. Of course, Jewish Jesus could be considered uh, a king. Um, yes, I, I think it would be um, staggering, un staggeringly unlikely for John to write that they wrapped the body of Jesus with and with the spices in the cloths. Yes, without mentioning that he was setting fire to them. I mean, well, the fire was maybe going to happen later um the, the the burial was not complete in fact in my first 
my 2000 book, I go out of my way. I, I had a, a, a Greek scholar um, do some translations and, and that he wasn't, what that John 1940 says is Jesus was prepared for burial. Not that he was buried according to Jewish burial customs. He was prepared for burial according to Jewish burial customs. And that would be in uh, uh, Appendix uh, B of my, my 2000 book. I'll go straight into John 1940 in the New International Version. John 1940, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. There's nothing to do with preparation there at all. And um, Mark Mir, if you if you want to come in, because I think you were trying to speak, feel free to feel Sorry. free to join. Yeah, yeah. I, well, um, uh, I wasn't necessarily, but I just okay. mentioned again that um, that this was very close to the time of Christ that they burnt a great fire for Gamaliel one of myrrh. So my 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 take on it, of course, is that the myrrh was not to bury his body with it in any way. It was going to be used. And why did he bring such a large amount? And that was typical of these tributes for kings and special people. So I, my take is that the myrrh was there not for burial, but for a tribute that he planned to burn for him. That's very reasonable. I, I, I go along with that. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, what another aspect here in terms of the burial that I don't think we we addressed it. Okay. What, what was the shroud man washed or not? Was it a partial washing? And how does that relate to first century Jewish burial customs? Uh, what What are your guys' thoughts on on that question? Uh, none of the, not even John, none of them mentioned that Jesus's Jesus's body was washed. If anything, the women were coming back to complete the burial. And if he was going to be washed, and that's a big, big if, um, it, they never got to it. Um, but again, it, it, would, it would violate the Jewish burial customs if you wash the blood off the man. And, and uh, because he had lifeblood, blood that flowed before and after his death, and you're supposed to leave that alone, which which it was done. And um, uh, there's one example in the in the Bible where they do talk about they washed a woman at her burial, and it's just very brief. It's just they washed her. And they could have said something like that if that was the case with Jesus. They didn't. It wouldn't have had to be as long as our dialogue here. No. Um, and and so I don't think that. And and besides all the blood. On all the blood flows are flowing downward, whether it's the arms or what, it's in the vertical position. If you'd washed him, it's been very, very difficult to get those blood, all that blood to re-bleed again in the vertical direction. I just don't think it's possible. I think you're right. Um, however, I would quote Fred Zugibi, who couldn't get over the fact that the back shows all these distinct scourge marks. Now, he was absolutely convinced as a pathologist who carved his way through thousands and thousands of people who died in thousands of odd ways, that after the scourging, Jesus's back would have been an absolute mass of blood from top to bottom. And that's why he insisted 
that that bit at least must have been washed. But he never accounted for the fact that the blood flows down the arms are apparently not washed. Um, I would just say one thing, and that is that um, the there's a lot of fuss about washing and not washing to do with something to do with the whether the lifeblood is being collected or not. It doesn't have to stay on the body as long as it's with the body with the burial. You you can wash it off and then keep it. I mean, people who who uh, rush around. Well, they don't do it so much now because it doesn't happen. But people who used to rush around the terrorist attacks in Jerusalem after suicide bombers had uh, had gone round, they went round mopping up the blood. I've got somebody, I think it was probably one of the BBC documentaries on the Shroud, showed all these pious Jews rushing around after a bombing, mopping up the blood so that they could include it with the with the cloths that they used to mop it up with the body. So you could easily wipe a body clean and then leave the blood that you'd wiped off with the body and uh, and not violate any Jewish laws about not being buried, buried intact. Okay. So I, I've just got no idea whether whether Jesus was, was washed or not. I mean, as, as a person who thinks the shroud is medieval, it's a bit of an academic point. Oh, there's a lot of blood on that cloth. And to think that it re-bled again... In that volume, and, and uh, yeah, no chance. Fred, Fred Zugaby, I doubt if any of any of his work was. I mean, I could see if 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 you had a, the Cat of Nine Tails or whatever they, uh, 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 Mel Gibson's movie had it, where yeah. he was so bloody. But if you had a round barbell structure like that, you, you would you would seem to leave the leaves like that. Adler. Um, worked with a guy named Dr. Scotty and they took the scourge marks on the positive, the photographic negative, the, the positive image and put them under a microscope and they could see slightly indented centers and slightly upraised edges, which is more likely how skin would react to, to a little barbell going on. Mm, and, well, you think so. and they found the serum around the edges and i would think that's awfully hard for a for a medieval forger to get that exactly right like that uh, and uh on every one of them yeah um, kelly kelly kiers explains that he got an exactly similar serum ring around the edges uh using lemon juice so uh you, it, you don't have to have serum but uh if you want to see somebody being flogged uh, it happens every year, and there are lots of videos of it on the internet at the, in the Philippines. And they're not using nasty Roman scourges. They're mostly just using bits of string. And their backs are completely red from top to bottom. And they, these are the flagellants who go around uh, Manila. And, th and then there's that dear little chap who, uh, this year, I think he's 67. He's been crucified 45 times. Actually crucified with nails through his hands and feet. Um rather illustrates that crucifixion is not as terribly deadly. He gets better after a couple of weeks. Um, the, the, the wounds heal. And, and then he waits He waits in dread for next Good Friday to come around and does it again. When, when, when Kelly Kersey puts lemon juice around yeah. a, a scourge mark. Yeah. He used does, lemon juice as an anticoagulant. Okay. But does he test it for serum? Uh, I don't recall. I would have to go and check his papers. If you're going to, I mean, it may look 
I don't know. The most of the serum all around the scourge marks and that are clear. And yeah. and you you have to see it under ultraviolet light or take a portion of it, which that what Sterp did, take it and tested it chemically as serum. Hmm. And so I think he's just uh, making it look like a serum or something. Um, but if it doesn't test serum, you it's it's just a it's just an art, artistic effect. No, Mark, Mark Neer, if you don't, yeah, I was going to, what, what I'll do for the info, if you guys do want to talk, just raise your hand and I'll make note in order. But yeah, what, what do you make on this question of the washing, Mark Neer? <clears throat> well, the code of Jewish law called the Shulchan Aruch is the highly esteemed code of Jewish law and customs. <clears throat> Fortunately, it addresses the matter citing from Mish, Jewish Mishnah Nazir 49b and Oholot, 1.6. The Babylonian Talmud, Baba Kama 101b, also addresses some of these matters, and they record the following. <clears throat> the body was to be wrapped in a sheet called a sovev, like a shroud, and whatever clothing was upon the deceased at the time of death was to be buried with the deceased, or if he died naked, he was to be buried naked, just as we find on the shroud. But this, this other part is very interesting. It says, whatever blood flowed from the body at the time of death, death was considered life blood. If it was at least the amount of a quarter log, the size of an egg and a half, it says, such blood was not to be washed or tampered with. Hmm. <clears throat> so that was uh, uh, Shulkan Arok, the, the esteemed code of Jewish law, and um, some other quotes from... Uh, Jewish Mishnah, Nazir 49b, and Oholot 1.6. Those might be things to look up. <clears throat> cool. So, yeah. yeah. We're, we're approaching, I, I do want to transition to the second topic, but just very quickly before I do, the last thing I just want to ask each of the panelists on the historical accuracies versus inaccuracies with the burial. Um, okay, so the position of the Shroud Man, you know, like, He's got his arms crossed over his groin and stuff like that. Is this historically consistent with first Jewish uh, practices? I've heard some people say, no, that doesn't fit the Malou. So, mm -hmm. yeah, what, what's your guys' take on the position that the Shroud Man is in? Uh, all, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, all first century, uh, second temple um, burials, um, including, I oh, know, the, uh, the, the one who was kept in his loculus, they just crumbled away to bones and nearly all of them are in ossuaries. You can't tell what position they were buried in. There are a few um, burial sites dotted around, I think Masada, at the foot of Masada is one and there's a couple of, uh, elsewhere, which have got uh, bodies buried. And basically you can only bury a body in three positions. Either the hands are by the side or they're crossed over the chest or they're crossed over the waist. And that's how they're in every single cemetery from umpteen BC to, 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 to the present day. If you look at the way bodies are buried, you get about one third of each kind. Okay. Mark Antonacci. In Qumran, they found bodies yeah. Yeah. where the hands are crossed over the groin and the elbows are protruding and they're face up. Mm -hmm. And they're in the position of the man in the shroud. Yeah, yeah. That's just, yes. Awesome. As they, uh, lots, lots of bodies are found like that, but then lots of bodies are found in other ways. However, I could put in one little question. Um, it's generally thought, it's often said, that the 
man in the shroud had rigor mortis. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Rigor mortis fades away after a while. So if Mark Near is correct and the, and the shroud image arrived several, uh, many hours after Jesus was buried, Rigor Mortis would have worn off and his feet would have flopped outwards. Um, or if they were in a, in a pyramid shape, they'd have collapsed downwards like that. But I don't think the, that, that doesn't quite match. If, there's, if the image was made while the man was in Rigor Mortis, uh, then it has to have been made within an hour or so of him being buried. The other thing about rigor mortis, which people often point out, um, what well, people often don't point out, is that if you die hanging from a cross, your hands are absolutely straight. Your arms are straight. You don't die like this. Where are my arms? Up. At an angle. You die hanging. And yet the arms of the man in the shroud are at a very distinct angle. Uh, they couldn't possibly be in rigor mortis uh, unless they had been dragged down and then bent. But the trouble with that is that there'd be no reason to drag them down and bend them because if they were straight, they would cover the groin a great deal better than they would do if they were at an angle. The whole thing is totally inconsistent, which is why I think it's medieval. Uh, you're making several points and, and um, I'll try to address them all. Um, so the rigor mortis collapsing was the first one. The rigor mortis sets in. I had a long talk with a, a famous pathologist in St. Louis named Mary Case. Mm -hmm. And um, she said if, if, if someone is um, doing a lot of physical exertion um, and he's stressed, straining and uh, which obviously would happen during the middle of a crucifixion, um, that, that rigor mortis can set in quickly, and, and especially if it's warm, like it would have been in the daytime. And then if you then put this body in a cool environment, such as a cave, it will stay. In fact, that's how they keep, you know, they put them in refrigerators and, and uh, they try to keep them out of freezers where, where they get ice and everything on them. But they like put them in, in kind of a more like a refrigerator and keep it cool until they're done with their autopsy work. Mm. But it could have been that in Jesus. And she, just like many, many other um, pathologists that I, I cite in my book, thinks his body is in rigor mortis. Look at the, um, this isn't absolute proof, but it appears that, you know, the left leg is still upraised and it's pointing down as, and the right leg is pointing down too. Yeah, people often mention the legs, yeah. Um, and, and, and look how stiff <coughs> the body is all along the backside from head to foot. It, uh, uh, the pectoral muscles are enlarged. That's because they're, they're, they're kind of staying in the same position that they were. But the in. arms are bent. What about the arms now? They're bent. They're what? They're bent. They're at an angle. They're bent at the elbow. Well, they're they're bent. They, they've actually, you know, obviously been intentionally placed over his private area. But it, uh, if they would fit better if they hadn't been deliberately bent. Well, his hands would be up like this. You'd have to. No, bend. They, 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 obviously, they were bent at the shoulder. You'd massage the shoulders, yeah. But why were they bent at the elbow? 
Well, he, I'm not trying to say he was like this. It's just how he was nailed. He could have been nailed like this. He has no. no he, couldn't, he, could, he couldn't have been hanging. There's no way he could hang after dying with his arms bent. All his weight was on the nails. He'd have flopped forward, and his arms would be straight, absolutely straight. Not necessarily. It yes, just necessarily, depends. absolutely necessarily. There's no possible way of hanging a body from a couple of nails with the arms bent. If it depends upon how high they put the what's that the patibulum, the horizontal thing. Yeah. Um, it depends on how how far they placed it up and the length of his arms. Yeah. Um, nope, nope, they wouldn't be bent. It would be straight unless he was actually standing on the ground. He can only fall forward so much. His feet are nailed too. His arms would be straight. It's well worth well, just the, uh, after this. That's a possibility. Hmm? That's a possibility. But, but if you're standing, oh, you next, next, time, next time you're at the gym, because I'm sure you go there very often, oh, get yourself yeah. up on the bar. <laughs> And, and, and try and relax with your arms bent. And you'll find it's completely impossible. But the guy's dead. Yeah, well, you try you, <laughs> that it. That means he's relaxed. That means he's not trying to, to, uh, to hold himself up. What, what, if they, what if this was the position, like many uh, people think, and I, and I don't really have a position, but if this was the position, if you were going to then place them down over your groin, that seems to to be a lot easier than if it's like this. You'd have to you'd have to break that rigors at the middle so that you could could do that. Well, no, all you have to do if the arms are straight, they're, they're longer and they fit over the groin perfectly. Oh, I can't do it there. <laughs> they don't fit over the groin like that. Well, because because they're bent. They don't fit over the groin. And this is why people like Giulio Fanti has to come up with the idea that the whole body is now uh, lifted up somehow and the head was bent forward uh, because that was how he sees the uh, body lying on the on the cross. So we've got this strange kind of zigzag shape of the body with going from the from the feet to the uh, to, to the uh, heels and then from the heels up to the knees and from the knees down to the buttocks and then from the buttocks up to the shoulders. So the whole body is in a kind of uh, a W shape. Um, and all this is entirely so that we can get the hands across the groin. <laughs> because I, otherwise, I, I, I figure it's all speculative, and and uh, I I, uh, I I I don't know where you're going with it, but I, I don't, you've got a long way to go to prove your case. <coughs> I think I'd challenge any doctor yes. to disagree with me. I think they would have had to break the rigor on the shoulder mm -hmm. to possibly get him in, possibly. I don't know how wide the actual tomb was, um, but to put his hands, they've obviously been intentionally placed there. Mm. You could, well, if you had to bend something, that would be the place, the elbow. Okay. There's no place you can bend it. So, uh, Mark, I just want to, just before we end on that, uh, did you have anything to say on that? Or are you, you happy with what Mark and Hugh have said on that front? I'm happy with Mark and Hugh said, yeah. <coughs> so, uh, I'm just. We're going to move on to the next topic. Just one quick announcement for the fans um, that I think you guys will be interested in terms of what Hugh Ferry was saying about the rigor mortis. So 
Uh, my friend, Teddy Pappas, shout out to her. Um, I, I'm restricted in what I can say, but she's writing a book and she's gone into amazing detail on the phases of uh, what happens to the body. And I, I would just say that Hugh's objection from what I've seen it is wrong and she will address it. I can't explain how you're wrong yet because of legal issues, but uh, trust me, you're going to want to see Teddy's book. Uh, she goes into great deal, even citing a 150 year long study. So that's going to be great. So other than that, I'll shut up just so I don't reveal that, but let's transition to the, this question of, look, is the Shroud Man anatomically accurate or inaccurate? And I, I want to do start with opening statements, just like we did with the first topic. Um, so, yeah, on, on this front, uh, this was, I know, Mark Antinacci, you were very excited about this topic. So, yeah, it, do you want to give sort of an opening for 10 minutes or less, whatever you want to do on, is the Shroud Man anatomically accurate or not? Um, there's distortions on the image um they're they're not unforgivable uh they don't mean that it wasn't a human body um i find them interesting um you've got some lines going down the chin underneath the upturned beard and i've done some amateurish experiments in that but if that body was disappearing and the cloth was falling through the the edges of the body it would leave some lines and you get this real odd almost uh you know the kind of a neck on a sweater they called them dickies back in the 60s mm. it looks like he has a dicky there yeah and i think that's simply from there's a there's a gap look on the the positive image you'll see it's all black from the middle of the chest up to the chin and that's just the drape of the cloth i think from the chin to the there and if the cloth was falling consistent with those lines uh, there's a lower part below there that would sag at the neck that if if the body's disappearing in a downward direction the neck hasn't disappeared yet. This is a possible explanation. Obviously, I can't perform such an experiment, although I would love to make Hugh's body disappear if I could, you know? <laughs> um, but, um, and he's got the beard for it too. So, but, um, and also the, look at the left thigh from the knee to the hip. It's narrow. And that's consistent with, I can't hear, you know, getting that, having that left leg up, that the, 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 the cloth would kind of form a tent-like effect from the knee to the, to the thigh. And it might, the cloth might sag toward the right. Look at closely at that positive image. The right thigh on the frontal image appears to be two to three times wider than the left thigh. Now, and if you look on the back image, you, you see they're the same size. And I wonder if that's a drape effect. I wonder if that's consistent with the cloth falling. And another place is the fingers. If you have your hand like this and the cloth folds over it, when you hold the cloth out straight, the fingers are going to look long. <coughs> 
And that's another obvious distortion, the man in the shroud, his fingers are too long. And it looks like you're seeing more than skin there. It looks like you're seeing bones there. And um, I think you've got evidence for, um, if a cloth is falling down through a body and receiving radiation, they could be ha happening simultaneously. And it would be very interesting to me if we put some of this new non-destructive scientific technology, apply it toward the shroud and see if the body image components are the same as these distorted lines and, and distortions. And if, if so, it would be, it would be very interesting and you'd have some argument that that the the cloth's falling because the body's disappearing and it's receiving radiation in the draped awkward drape like effects that it is all right awesome so uh mark near uh go ahead and give an opening as, as long as you want 10 minutes or less um what's your take on this anatomical question is the shroud man accurate or are there inaccuracies? What's your take? Well, I'm not a great expert on that, uh, but um, as far as I know, <clears throat> it, it seems to be anatomically accurate, but I, I'm i not real boned up on uh, providing all the detail about that, <laughs> so. No problem, no problem. All right, cool. So I'll, I'll turn it straight to Hugh then. Uh, I'm, okay. I'm assuming, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, can I can I can I share a, a picture? Yep, go ahead. You know how, how can to I do that? What do I press? So if you see on the bottom where it says present. Oh, got it. Yeah. And then click on share screen. Share screen. Okay. And then it'll pop up a box. Says, so, share yeah, screen. Click. I think I'll just have to click on share screen. Does and it pop up a box? It says Google Chrome would like to record this computer screen. So I've said yes. Choose what to share. Oh, we're just getting a tab up. If I can. So if you're on the right tab, then click the image. There we go. I'm going to share the entire screen. Right. Can you see my entire sheen, screen being no, shared? So click, click the image. when. So you're on entire screen. Then click the image. Okay, got it. And now click and share. And then it should pop up. Right. Has that popped up? It's I'm not. Hoping it's, I'm hoping it's a picture of a hand. No, nothing showing up in the queue yet. So hey, I know people have had uh, problems with this before. Let's try it again. Share screen, share screen, and go share to the entire screen. screen. That's the entire screen. Click the share image. Well, click the image, right? So oh, that it's highlighted. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is it not? I've got a, a Google a Chrome is still doing fancy things. Always allow StreamYard to open everything you want. Well, I, I tell you what, he, uh, yeah, if you okay. if you send me an email and do your speech, yeah. I'll, I'll post it up for you. But you can just send me like an email. Yeah. With okay. the, the image. On its way. All right. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> when it turns up, it'll be a picture of the hand. But uh, Okay. I won't talk about the hand just yet. I want to talk about blood while I'm doing it. Um, and because, uh, here we go, <clears throat> uh, because I the trickles down the hand and the trickles down the head, I think it's quite important 
that blood uh, doesn't come out of, um, of, uh, uh, of, of puncture wounds. That's why first aiders have to keep uh, have to keep their their uh, piercings in place. And certainly, that little chap who's been crucified forty-five times, um, he um, he doesn't bleed enormously when he's being crucified. So all that blood pouring down the arm while in a crucifixion position seems to be uh, or seems to have to be after death if the hands have been upright then the blood would have pooled down to the body after death and so uh, it, it wouldn't have been able to pour out of the hands and that's what i think is a medical inconsistency you're saying the, the blood wouldn't come out of the, the blood hands wouldn't come after after death. There's no reason why the hands would no blood would come out of the arms at all, because it will all have drained downwards into the body, uh, because that's what happens when you die. Uh, I, I don't think the blood flows on the hand or the arm. The forearms did come after death. They're so all. When do you from think it occurred? During the crucifixion, they flowed as from I the said, wrist. hardly any blood flows from wrists during crucifixion. Um, you as you can see, you hmm? can feel your pulse, and it'll it would pump it out. You'll feel your be, no, it doesn't. If you the it would not go through any major blood vessels, so I don't think enough blood would pour out. They might get a little trickle around the sides, but you certainly wouldn't get a long trickle pouring down. Uh, until you took the nails out. It would continue to spurt for hours on the cross. No, it wouldn't spurt at all. That's the whole point. If anybody who's done any first aid course will but, know. But, but come out. The blood doesn't, doesn't spurt out. If you've got, say, somebody with a great shard of blood, uh, a shard of glass into an artery, you leave it spurts there. The, spurts the wrong word. But it would, it, would, it would pump out a little bit. Like, I don't know. Well. Like it, it, it doesn't look at the little chap. I mean, there's videos of him being crucified. Um, mind you, he's lying flat on the ground while he's being crucified. But uh, the blood, he, he, he's there and the blood doesn't come out. Okay, I've sent you this thing, Dale. Have you got it? Yep, if he, just keep through now. So let me okay. share the screen for the hand. If, if he's laying flat on his back, you don't have the gravity that brings it down. Yeah, so you're suggesting Thanks. he was nailed with his hands upright yeah which is do you guys see that hand? right there we go yes how about that can you see that hand yes mm -hmm. um now uh, can somebody tell me you could use the names of the bones on the right hand side where you think the wrist wound was Oh, there's the one doctor, uh, Fred Zugaby says it's a quarter of an inch off from where Barbet says, but uh, I don't know. So, I mean, all I'm suggesting is that the uncanny anatomical precision, which about five different doctors have claimed, when you actually ask each one, be uncannily anatomically precise and say where the wrist wound is, and they come up with five different answers. And the trouble is, you have to say, not that they're all idiots, because these are all highly experienced pathologists. 
what you have to say is that the shroud is not sufficiently um, is not sufficiently uh, anatomically uh, delineated to be able to be sure. It's a blur. People go on and on about how incredibly uh, high resolution it is, but it isn't. And I say, if, if there's any doctor who looks at this podcast afterwards and can say, yes, I think it went through the space of death dot. Well, point out where the space of death dot is. And let's let's, for the sake of convenience, whack it through one of those holes. So either between the capitate, the hamate and the lunate bone, if you can spot those, they're the three big ones on the right hand side. Oh, look at that. Yes. Or that, so that little, that little, the joint where the where those three bones meet, the capitate, the capitate, the hamate, and the lunate. They were down a bit, down a bit, down a bit. Where, that's it. There, that's one place uh, which was suggested, and the other place is the next one along between the capitate, the lunate, and the scaphoid bone. So along a tiny bit, along to the left, a tiny bit. Left. The scaphoid's on the left. Oh, this one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So up, 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 up. Follow that arrow up and go along a bit to the right, bit to the right, bit to the right. There. So that point there, or the other point which you just mentioned, these are typical places where people say they think that the wound is. Now, he says carefully, look on the picture of the hand on the right hand, on the left hand side, and the middle of the middle of the wrist. That's where people go for the bone being. And look at the distance between that point and the knuckles. And you'll immediately say, I hope you'll say, that the distance between that point and the first knuckle is a lot greater than the distance between the first knuckle and the finger joint in the middle of the fingers. Are, are you with me? Everyone's looking completely stunned here. <laughs> Do so sorry, Andrew, again, what are you saying? That it's yeah, which... distance from, from the knuckle there downwards mm -hmm. to the middle of the box there, that distance. So go back up to the knuckle. Okay. It's much bigger than from there. And now go up the finger to the middle of the finger. Okay. And then on to the middle of, to there. Okay. So you've got these two um what are they? Carpals or tarsals? Carpal bones. Carpal. Yeah. yeah. Um Oh, phalanges, in fact, three phalanges, phalanges. The second, the first phalanges, the carpals are the are the wrist bones, aren't they? So the 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 long thin ones are the other phalanges. So we've got a long one, and then a short one, and then from there to the little one just below, just below the, the fingernail, up a bit, shorter still, the down, 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 shorter still, and then you've got the last one where the fingernail is. So you've got four bones there: a little one, a slightly longer one. A much longer one and a very long one indeed. Now I only point this out. <laughs> I know it's a bit awkward, but if you look at a picture of the shroud, and then you try and have a look to see how long the distance is between the uh, entry wound and the knuckles, which are visible, you'll find that it's only about the same length as it is from the knuckle to the middle finger joint. In other words, the nail is right through the palm of the hand and it's nowhere near the wrist. Well worth checking that out. All right. Awesome. All. Now, the thing is, is I wish we had a doctor here who could say, no, um, I think that's wrong. But I've never found one that could disagree with me. Strange. Well, I, I don't think the exact location 
will determine the authenticity of the shroud. No, but it will determine the anatomical precision of the shroud. And it is one of the arguments in favor of authenticity that the shroud is so anatomically precise that it could not have been imagined by a medieval artist. And I'm saying that the shroud is A, not very anatomically precise, and B, therefore, a medieval artist could have imagined it. Just in terms of anatomical terms, there are other reasons why he might not have done it. That's my argument. Okay. Well, that's done the meeting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair, fair enough. So we'll put, we'll leave that a question kind of thing. Um, okay, uh, any other anatomical inaccuracies? Because um, I was also going to ask you guys, well, what about the studies that have confirmed the accuracy? I mean, we've had over two dozen forensic medical experts. Uh, obviously, we don't have them on today's show, but... Um, they've confirmed it. I mean, from all persuasions and stuff, when they've studied the shroud, they've said, yes, this is a, this does reflect an accurate image, despite these minor things. There's been a modern computer anthropometric uh, study that's been done and confirms this. So um, what do you guys think? There have been three, at least, highly detailed anthropometric studies. Um, there has been John Jackson's, where he's put the shroud exactly over uh, uh, an average volunteer that he collected and he's, he's put it up, you know, he's got that sort of cloth and measured exactly where all the markings are in terms of this volunteer. There's been the Rodanti version in which they decided that Jesus was, was crucified, sort of ended up sideways with, with one arm bent and one arm straight. Uh, and then recently you've got the uh, Giulio Fanti's latest version. Oh, no, and then you've got another one beyond that, which is the new ultra-realistic one, which apparently has got skin that depresses when you press it, except that you're not allowed to, and it's complete with real hair. Uh, and so if you had all these four in front of you, all of which are exactly carefully, computerly modelled on the shroud, and it comes to nobody's surprise that they're all quite different. <laughs> so you go, yeah, one man's computer precision is not the same as another man's computer precision. Mark, I'd agree with that. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so what 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 can we conclude then on the basis? So, if there are these various studies that have come to differences in opinion on, I guess, the position of the body and stuff like that, granted, but all of these studies are unanimous in saying, yeah, but it was a real body. It is forensically accurate. Uh, so that we can still take that away from these studies. Would, would you guys agree with that? Yes, and that's the main point. Yes, but I think um, that that demonstrates their faith, not their medical knowledge. Okay, and do, because, would you say about all the, all the other experts who who just kind of have studied the shrouds, images, and stuff, including agnostics and stuff? Like, you know, what about Robert Bucklin? And you mentioned Fred. Well, Robert, Robert Bucklin was far from agnostic. But you no, see, no. He, he came up with a with a with a very precise description of exactly where the various wounds were and indeed the cause of death, and was immediately followed by Fred Zugibe, another convinced authenticist, uh, who thought exactly the opposite. And not only that, but thought that anybody who thought that the nail had gone through the space of death was an idiot and said so. <laughs> um, you know, there is no anatomical precision on the shroud. I would not go so far as Zogibe and call these earlier people idiots. What I'm saying is there simply isn't enough information 
for anybody to claim that it's anatomically um, so precise that it couldn't be anything else. Okay, I have a, I have a, I have a response to that, but I, I saw Mark wanted Mark Antonacci wanted to speak. No, okay, okay. So, uh, well, that's I was just following as best I could. Okay, um, fair enough. And I agree. I agree that you know there's differences, and but, uh, but these in the end it doesn't matter if if it's this particular location that you're just looking at the same picture and no one can prove exactly they're right. They can just say why they think it's this, but, but you're talking about a quarter of an inch difference and, and uh, it's not fatal, a fatal mistake or something like that. And I, I just want to clarify. So for the audience, like what he was saying, and he's absolutely right, is that there are differences of opinions in the nitty gritty in the, it's kind of nitpicky, you know, like how, what position exactly uh, was Jesus, was the shrub man crucified in and, you know, medical experts at what point did the nail go in and, and stuff like that. There are differences there, but none of that takes away from the overall conclusion that, look, this did cover a real corpse in our anatomical. We have differences on the specifics as to how he was crucified or what position, stuff like that. But we can tell this was a real corpse. That's, that's what I'm trying to, that's my point, I guess. Yes, but at that point, I think the conclusion is not based on their medical findings. It cannot be based. It, that Their conclusion is based on their faith. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that they mustn't pretend that the uh, and the anatomy is so precise is that it it, uh, it proves that their, their view is correct. That's all I would say. Okay. No, no response. Okay, uh, yeah, do, does anyone have anything else to say about the anatomical accuracy versus inaccuracy aspects or? Well, there's a paper somewhere that I'm trying to find. Sorry about this, the other guys, but I'm, I, I, I read all these things and I store them up in my heart like the Virgin Mary. And uh, I think it was by Giulio Fanti was one of the co-authors and they looked at the feet of the front and the back image and decided that one of them showed the feet being right over left and the other one showed the feet being left over right. And they were published. The reason that was important is was because it was by convinced authenticists. And I'm trying to find it. And if we can't find it straight away, we'll put it in the uh, notes afterwards. Okay. I do have, I do, I thought of a question for you guys to speak about. Uh, so obviously Andrea Nicoletti has, has kind of come out with his skepticism and this will apply to Mark Neer as well a little bit because it's about history, but the scourge wounds, uh, you know, we, we can't find uh, the, a Roman flagrum that actually created these, these wounds. So someone might argue they're, they're not really historically or anatomically accurate. So do you guys want to have a discussion about the scourge wounds? Can we make any conclusions about them being historically and anatomically authentic or not? Or What um, does Nicoletti say about the, the scourge marks? I'm not familiar with him. Go ahead, you. <laughs> if you want to explain. Um, he, he, he tried to find any uh, archaeological, literary, or um, graphical evidence that a Roman flagrum matched the wounds on the shroud and didn't find any at all. Uh, there are no archaeologically archaeological remains of Roman flagra. And even um, 
that lovely girl, uh, Flavia Mansevigi, who published a whole paper saying, look what I found. And what she found was a lot of Etruscan horse trappings. And um, they didn't really look like shrouds, uh, like the wounds on the shroud anyway. And uh, so we, we he, can't, he can't say that the scourge that was used on the man in the shroud uh, didn't exist because it might have been. But there is absolutely no evidence for any such scourge. And it would be dishonest to pretend that there was. And anybody who uses the reconstructions in wood and leather um, and says, look, it's amazing. You can see Robert Bucklin doing this. It makes you chuckle with glee as he goes, look at these, how these two little dumbbells exactly match the marks on the shroud. Did he not realize that they do that because they were modeled on the marks on the shroud? They were a back formation from the marks into making a representative flagrum. There's no evidence that there were ever Roman flagra with little lead balls on the end. Such evidence as there is suggests that they had nails, bits of pottery or broken bones. Um, but that's not to say that there couldn't have been one with little lead balls, but it would be wrong to say that there was or that there must have been. Oh, well, Mark. That's, that's the only point about uh, uh, what was excavated. Uh, supposedly there's a there was a, a flagrum excavated in Herculaneum. Yeah, yeah. Well, it took Andrea Nicolotti to track that down. It's about that long, and it has two, three little jangly bits on the end. So there's the body there, and here's the extra bits here. And they're three, it's all made of metal, and they're three chains ending in what looks like little bells. Um, sometimes they look like little bells, other ones look like little teardrops. But either way, uh, they're now generally thought of to be much older than first century, and they're Etruscan, and they probably hung around the necks of horses and things like that. Uh, Mark Neer, you you wanted to speak. I saw you raise your hand. Well, he might be talking about what I was going to say. I, I'm not sure about that, but um, I, I I thought I remember reading that uh, they discovered at Pompeii where the Mount Vesuvius erupted that they found a flagrum. Yeah, and it seemed to be similar. Not yeah. No, it isn't. It's it's miles too small for a start, uh, but it's okay. nothing like it. No. Fair enough. Okay, cool. Well, one thing again, just for the audience, uh, I'm I I can't say anything in the show, but again, Teddy Pappas has done uh, even ex scientific experiments, kind of testing out these these scourge claims. But you got to wait for her book. But uh, trust me, there's some good stuff in her research there. So, yeah, I think that that kind of covers it in terms of the anatomical questions and stuff like that um let me let me just open it up because uh to each of the participants if there's anything mark near starting with you is there anything we haven't spoken of uh, anything related to today's topic that you just want to get the feedback from the other two panelists on yeah um <clears throat> i i wondered uh let's see um the image um regarding the shroud uh if it was created, do, do do you think it was created in medieval times then, Hugh? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. So my question related to that is, um, from what I understand, what makes the image is that there's no substance on the shroud that makes the image, other than the blood, of course. But um, but let's see. Um, yeah. What what makes the image is that the molecules have changed that makes the image into conjugated carbonyl double bonded molecular groups 
So yeah, friends, that, you, 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 you don't need fancy chemistry. It's just that if you put a, an ironing, a, a, an iron on a sheet, it goes brown. Uh, that's basically what happens. That's your conjugated well, carbonyl groups. But but my understanding is that what actually makes the image is uh, that the molecules were changed, and mm -hmm. um, and how would a medieval artist be able to see molecules which he didn't know existed um, to to change the molecules to make the image. <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, well, that's a slightly bizarre way of putting it, really, um, in the sense that anybody, a medieval person who left his socks too close to the fire, would have noticed, without any knowledge of chemistry at all, that his socks had gone brown. Mm -hmm. And it would be because of the carbonated, uh, the conjugated carbonyl chains and, and the um, proteins of the, of, the, of the socks. I mean, if they were woolen socks, if they were cotton socks. You know, so... Just you don't need to know about how things happen for them to happen. I think the important point, though, is that there are two ways of doing this. One of them is using uh, what we basically call heat, um, which might be uh, radiation of some kind. It might be ultraviolet. It might be infrared. It might just be um, might be microwaves or something like that. They, under certain circumstances, and Paolo Di Lazzaro has done huge amounts of work on this, um, you could just uh, yes uh, change the uh, surface of these uh, of the cloth by using uh, radiation. But another way of doing it is using acid. So if you have, for example, um, soak a cloth in vinegar, or if you don't want to soak the whole cloth in vinegar, if you just want to get a vinegar-soaked uh, handkerchief or something like that, make it a bit, squeeze it out so it's damp, and just go like that onto onto a surface, you won't immediately be able to see anything, but the vinegar will be enough to start degrading the uh, cellulose on the top and indeed conjugate the carbonyl bonds into double bonds, which will produce this um, orangey color. Uh, and so what, I'm certainly not the first person to suggest it. In fact, the person I like to drag onto my side because it was his idea uh, is um, Joe Assetta, one of the Sturp team, who thinks that the shroud was uh, produced using oak gall ink, which is one of the most common um, colorants throughout the entire Middle Ages, what all documents were, were written in. And uh, when it was badly made, you can see medieval parchments, which instead of having writing on them, have got holes where the writing ought to be because the ink has eaten away at the document. And to a certain extent, all the ink does very slightly. So because of the tannic acid in the in the in the oak gall. So if you had some uh, uh, printing ink like that, that was slightly acidic uh, and you because I think the shroud was probably more likely to be a print than a painting as such. Um, and then at some point you just washed all the ink off. You'd still be left with the degraded uh, surface from the acid content. Could could that create a three dimensional image? Yes. That way? Yes. Yes, uh, because um, a lot of people, uh, and quite fair enough, like to think of the graduation in color as being as if the uh, shroud was horizontal and the whatever it was that was coming off was was very strong where the body was close to the surface of the shroud and, and weaker where the, where's my hand gone, and weaker where the body was further away from the shroud. However, if you were to do it chemically, you would say that it would be stronger where the 
cloth was pressed harder onto, say, a bas relief and weaker. So if you had a carving that was shaped a bit like, I'm trying to get my picture so you can see it, a bit like that, yes. If you pressed a cloth onto that, you would naturally press on the knuckles harder than you would onto the either side. And so the acid deterioration would be greater on the knuckles than it would on the either side. And again, you'd get that graduation, which would give the illusion of being three-dimensional. All right. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, over to you, Hugh. Is there anything for the panelists that, because I, I, I know, for example, I interrupt you on the carbon dating stuff when you're going with Mark Antinacci, but is there anything that you want to talk to Mark Muir and Mark Antinacci that we haven't covered today? Or I just want to throw one interesting thing out which I discovered by accident and which has no bearing on the shroud, whatever, but it will make you interested. Um, so I wrote a, a medieval shroud blog on it. Uh, the tombs which had stones, which you rolled away. Mm -hmm. um, funnily enough, there were vanishingly few um, before the sack of Jerusalem of, I think, 96... Um, uh, tombs that have been discovered here we go I'll get it in a minute four of them only four of them had rolling stones and here we go it's uh, Amos Cloner the archaeological uh, Israeli archaeologist Amos Cloner uh, has a book called the necropolis of Jerusalem in the second temple period which details over 900 tombs rock cut tombs uh, of which only four were sealed with round stones. All the rest was sealed with plugs. So it is vanishingly unlikely that anyone rolled a stone in front of Jesus's tomb. However, if the Gospels were written a bit later, then the rolling stone tombs came in. And there are more uh, of these rock cut tombs from after the sack of Jerusalem, and they do have rolling stones. There's an interesting thought. Okay, Mark Neer or Mark Antonacci. Anything uh, No. Just to play devil's advocate, like like you do with everything. <laughs> how do they know for certain whether a tomb made out of stone is is that they're finding in the nineteenth, twentieth, twenty first centuries um, is really before seventy A.D. or after seventy A.D. or was used as a tomb? That's not nearly the precision that you kind of demand with everything else. They're just giving estimates. How did they tell? I have no idea. I, I, yeah. I, I'm afraid I don't have this you book. Should, you should apply the same skepticism to that. As, so you I well, as I say, I don't think it's particularly relevant. It's just, it's just an interesting right. uh, observation. But it, in a book, a proper book written by a proper Israeli archaeologist, um, Who's, who, he doesn't mention Christ at all. He's not interested. He's just interested in the archaeology of Jerusalem. Yeah. Mark, Mark, anything to say? Or? Well, um, the the owner of the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, was a very wealthy man. <laughs> and maybe that's some factor in this as well. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I was wanting to scream that, but I couldn't. But, oh. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay, cool. So, Mark Antinacci, over to you. Um, again, is there anything that you want to discuss with either Hugh or, or Mark that we haven't really gotten into in today's discussion? Um, the types of methods that Hugh describes, um, you, can, you can account for some of the larger scale issues of the shroud 
in 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 some fashion um like the the illusional three-dimensional effect and uh but it's just that it's illusional it's it's not a true three-dimensional image but if you examine them in the large scale and the micro macroscopically and microscopically then you find it, it doesn't hold up there's about 32 things i list in my uh 2015 book and I'm, I'm adding to this and i'll be coming out with more but um you know they don't match the macroscopically and the microscopically and 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 the thing about the shroud is that all these 32 features the only agent that can can duplicate all these features um would be low penetrating low energy uh, radiation coming from that body um which they, they've not duplicated in, in all these respects. Um, and even the respect where they claim to duplicate it, it's illusionary. Now they do they do a better job on the photographic negativity, but, but they've got a long ways to go. But a larger point that I've been arguing since 2015, and I'm gonna be emphasizing more in the near future, is that if you apply some of the new and developing um, non-destructive and minimally destructive techniques, you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt all these methods, whether they, they work or not. And if, if a radiating event occurred where particles are eliminated, are emanating from the body, you could prove that too. You could answer all of these questions by examining the shroud at the molecular and atomic and other elemental levels. And, and we should, um, we're get, we're developing that technology and we should, it's relevant one way or the other. It's relevant, whether they, the uh, shroud is Jesus's burial cloth. And if such events occurred and you can prove when and where they did, um, it's relevant to everyone. Um, even those um, who haven't even been born yet. And, and it's something we should focus on. And uh, um, it, it could be the most interesting project, far more fascinating than going to, uh, to the moon or to Mars or where you'd live in an artificial atmosphere at best. And uh, this would be the most exciting and potential um, endeavor you could ever imagine. Uh, and uh, we all have everything to gain and nothing to lose by by concentrating on this. Awesome. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah. I just want to thank everybody. Um, I do. We do have about four audience questions. If you guys want to give your take on some of those, so the first one. This is uh, directly aimed at Mark Near from Faith Unaltered. Uh, so, this, hey Tyler, if you're still watching, uh, but he says, "Question for Mark Near: Are you saying that?" Images in all forms, painting, statues, etc., are to be used in Jewish worship as long as it's not worship. Uh, does this apply to relics also? Uh, well, yes. The commandment that I see in Torah is not commanding the existence of those things; it's commanding the worship of those things. So, as long as it's not looked as something to worship, I don't have any problem with with that. Does that answer the question for you then? <laughs> uh, it answers it for me. Yeah. I don't know if he's okay. likes it, but uh, yeah. And Mark, if you any anything and, that you want to say on this? I was going to say too that uh, that's 
part of this Hebrew doublet situation, which is a very unique situation for Jewish ways of expressing where you'd, um, you know, present a thought and then you would come back with the Hebrew doublet, you know, to reinforce it, the meaning, to clarify the meaning and understanding. So. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about it, um, except that it interests me that the uh, commandment goes on and on about graven images. It particularly yeah. refers to objects like sculptures and things. It doesn't seem to mention paintings. Uh, what, 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 I'm sorry, that's that's like what, what I mentioned where um, they create, uh, God told Moshe to make a graven image of yeah, cherubim. Yeah, that's, yes, that's true. Um, and the other thing is, that's the key. Well. Quite so. And again, the shroud, according to uh, authenticists, is not a image made by man at all. And the prohibition in the Old Testament doesn't stop God from making whatever images he feels like. So that, 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 that seems quite reasonable. Okay. Um, and I had one other point, but I've forgotten what it was. Oh, uh, the, the other point, slightly contradicting that, is, is if you look in synagogues around the world, which I never have, but perhaps Mark has seen some, do they have any graven images or any paintings or anything in them today? Uh, now we're testing his Jewishness, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. So not, um, that I've, not that I've seen anyway. No. Yeah. So although perhaps you're allowed to paint, most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, this one's kind of related, but it, from Kevin. So I guess this is just again from Mark Muir, but just sort of a simple yes or no because I think you guys gone over this but yeah so is mark making the argument that the shroud isn't authentic because it's a graven image which mark mark no <laughs> it's it's for all of you if you guys want to say something about it but yeah uh no he's not okay <laughs> thank you mark uh, that's right all right cool so here here's a good question for all of you on something a bit different um Okay, so the vulture says, my question about the theory of the shroud being a medieval hoax, how on earth did the hoaxer outsmart, outsmart modern expertise? Why isn't it easily explained? So we'll start with you uh, first on that yeah. one. Um, I'd like to go to just tell a story, uh, which I may have mentioned before, but it's entertaining. Supposing I had a cake in a tin and I asked the chef to reproduce it perfectly and he said, right, fine, let's have it then, and I'll have a look. And I said, no, 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 you can't have it. But here's a photograph of it. And he goes, well, I can't reproduce a cake by just looking at a photograph of it. I need to know about its chemistry and stuff. So I go, ah, well, I'm luckily, I've had a bunch of experts study it. And he goes, ah, oh, thank goodness for that. You know, famous chefs and uh, culinary experts, biologists. No, 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 I got some nuclear weapons experts to have a look at it. And here's all their data. Now can you make me a cake? And uh, that's why it isn't easily explained. All right. Uh, um, no, so I, I've got no information. Art historians have got minimal information. If the shroud was subjected to an investigation by uh, the sort of people who study uh, doubtful Leonardo da Vinci's or Rembrandt's or something like that, uh, I think we'd have a much better idea of what we were doing. Awesome. Yeah. Over to the two marks. Do you guys have anything to say? Like it. If the shroud was a medieval hoax, would we expect to ha to have it fully explained by now or not? I would think so. Okay. Anything? Okay, uh, Mark. Mark. There, there's certainly been a lot of research on the shroud. That's for sure. 
Um, but yeah, this thing about molecules really does intrigue me because molecules were not proven. Now, um, Hugh, um, are you saying maybe that the shroud was created during the 1300s then? Like when they had the display of the shroud in Luray, France? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I suspect probably slightly earlier, probably about 1290, but yes, yeah. Okay. So see, one of, one of the questions that come to my mind is molecules were not proven to exist until six centuries later in 1926 when French chemist Jean-Baptiste de Perrin won the Nobel Prize in physics for proving mathematically yeah. the existence of molecules, but they could still not be seen as uh, molecules were not seen by a human eye until until recent times when um, IBM created the first atomic force microscope with a carbon monoxide tip that was in year 2009. So finally then man saw an actual molecule. But to Absolutely. make this with three-dimensional encodement and he can't see a molecule, it seems Have like- Have you ever made a well. piece of toast? Have you ever made a piece of toast? Yes. How much did your knowledge of atomic theory get involved in the making of a piece of toast? It took hours of study. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't need to know anything at all about molecules to produce an artwork. No, I just had to learn how to plug in the toaster. <laughs> well, that's right. Now, if you're very lucky, I don't know if you can still get them, but you used to be able to get, um, you can get little metal screens, which you drop into the sides of your toaster and then you drop the toast in and you push the thing down. Mm -hmm. And when it pops up, goodness me, you've got a perfect uh, toasted image of, say, Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Now, funnily okay. enough, it's dark in the middle and it's lighter around the outsides mm -hmm. where it's the heat has actually gone past the, the um, conducted heat. Convected heat has gone around the other side of the uh, of the hot of the screen. If you put that under a uh, VP8 image analyzer, you'll have a 3D Mickey Mouse without mm. knowing anything at all about molecules. Mm. That's uh, the idea that uh, things have to be understood at the molecular level before any science can happen. Uh, it's just not true. Mm. Otherwise, no one would ever have been able to do cooking until molecules were invented. Mm. I mean, how did people okay. ever boil right. water? without knowing that water was made of molecules. That's what I want to know. But apparently it was quite common. <laughs> All right, cool. So we've got two more questions and then we can close out for you guys. Um, so next question is from Mr. Jetty. And it's for all of you, even though he says it's for Hugh, but I guess, uh, so the color is the same. So what is varied is the color intensity. So he's talking about that feature of body image uniformity, uh, the intensity of color. So yeah. Um, yeah, Hugh, what's your take on that? And then we'll go around. This this is an, another of these things that's completely under, misunderstood by, by so many people. If you get some red paint and you paint something, a piece of wood say, then all the red paint is exactly the same color. It's red, it's the color of the paint. But if you paint it very thickly, then you get pure red. If you just spread the paintbrush rather less thickly, then you get the color of the um, uh, uh, of the wood coming through, so it looks a bit pink. Now, if you get a pencil, have you ever seen a pencil sketch? A pencil sketch of a person is a pencil on a piece of piece of paper. It could be a piece of linen, and sure enough, it has all these lights and darks, and yet. It's all exactly the same pigment. There's no change of color, as, uh, as, as Mr. Jetty writes. All that varies is the color intensity. 
And there have been lots of arguments about the fact that the medieval artist must have got his pencil and just put a dot here and a dot there so as to make sure that he'd got exactly the right coloration. But that's not how pencil sketchers do it. They just sketch it. And if you sketch it lightly, you get a light uh, image. And if, if you press it a bit harder, you get a darker image. I, I think people sort of have the idea that somehow a medieval artist must have used two different colors or three different colors or something like that. That's absurd. No, just, just the one. Okay. In I, fact, I that much more supports a, a pigment theory than it does a radiation theory. Um, because radiation is much more likely to have darkened, actually produced a darker color. Um, rather, than, you know, at, at a distance, it might produce a pale yellow, but closer up, it would actually be a different color, not just a different intensity. Okay. Either of the marks want to respond to that? We can talk about artistic and, and other methods um, all, all day long. Um, the proof will be in, in, in whether you can, whether you can produce these characteristics or not. Um, you can test artistic and naturalistic methods. And I think you can test even more sophisticated methods and, and we should conduct these tests to see what is, what comprises the image, what comprises the blood marks and even more definitive levels such as molecular atomic and other elemental levels and see their distribution in that and then you can you can draw results that that most people would agree upon uh, at that levels um whether you could see them or not is one thing but whether they were encoded or not and whether they were encoded from a body sooner or later you could agree that's just not possible for a human to do and uh, it's it's a wide open field that I'm hoping we can all take an interest in because it relates to everyone whom I die. Cool, awesome. Yeah, anything on your end, Mark Nier, or for this one? Or uh, I guess that's it for me on this one. <clears throat> all right, cool. So last but not least, from uh, Dale Johnson. Nice name, Dale. Um, but uh, so he, he's going back sort of the anatomical accuracy, inaccuracy about the arms being bent. Um, and he's saying, well, this makes perfect sense. That he doesn't see the problem because if the arms would have been bent to in order to cover the groin. I want to add a little bit here because um, one, a lot of things skeptics will bring up is that one of the arms is too long. It's, it's unnaturally long. Um, so if you guys want to include an answer for that in this, in this answer, but, um, yeah, over to you, uh, Mark Neer, let's, let's start with you if you don't mind for this one. Well, I, I've never thought of that before, but, um, I suppose it could be like the distance from the shroud might make a difference in how long an arm looks. Just guessing on that. Okay, cool. And Hugh, what's, what's your take on this question and on the, the long arm issue? Um, I, I, I think I've probably covered it. If, a, if you lie flat on the ground, then you can't cover your groin with your arms bent. But if you lean forward, then you can. However, my point is slightly that if the body is said to be in rigor mortis, then it should have straight arms. 
Now, if you go, ah, yes, but in order to fit in with the shroud, uh, they bent the arms. Then why didn't they straighten out all the rest of the body as well? They seem to have no qualms in, you know, you can't have one bit that they went, ah, well, we're going to fit the shroud of this. So we're going to bend the arms, but we're not going to lay his head back, oh, lay his head back down on the floor or straighten his legs. Why not? I mean, if you're going to break the regal mortis, then break the regal mortis. If you're not going to break it, then don't. Why should they do it in, you know, in some places, but not others? That sounds like special pleading. All right, Mark Antinacci. Well, there's only one reason. Uh, there's no reason to break the legs or break the rigor mortis on the legs. There is a reason to, for modesty purposes um, to do that. So that's what they do with the hands. There are distortions. I can see where the right forearm from the elbow to the end of the fingers appears longer. And you would have, we explained the fingers on one end, but when a hand like this, I can't show on the air, but but you're going to get some distortion if the cloth is collapsing through at the at the other end too on the elbow. But you really can't be definitive about anything because the one place, the only place where the image was damaged by the fire 1532 is between the elbows and the shoulders. And you'll see um, that the that that's the part of the image that's missing. So you really can't tell the position of that right shoulder or, or, or whether it was cramped up or you, you can't tell. So um, it's a good observation though. Uh, right. I, I agree with the observation. All right, awesome. Well, yeah, that uh, that does it. So I just wanna say thank you guys, everybody for, uh, for coming on. I hope you guys had a good time discussing these issues with each other and on your guys end, yeah. Awesome. Cool. So yeah, you guys are always welcome back anytime. Obviously Hugh's been on millions of times. I don't know, but <laughs> he's probably there's one commenter who always goes, Oh no, not Hugh. Ferry. <laughs> yeah, there is there. Well, he's, he's going to be, I'm going to be going after you again uh, for, for the next panel review sometime in May. So yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, thank you well, guys. I think, but seriously though, I think um, it always strengthens authenticity, authenticity, in their beliefs if they feel that they have successfully fought off a challenge to those beliefs if they all just sit around agreeing with each other then there's a sneaking feeling that you know are we all just a sort of mutual admiration society but if you guys if, if the various marks think right well I, he put up some arguments and i think we got him then you'll be strengthened in your faith and what more could i ask Absolutely. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much again. Uh, so just so the audience knows, uh, for my next show, uh, oh, uh, hell, the topic of hell, we're bringing on Omar Fakuri and D Dr. David Campbell Cook to discuss the Christian concept of hell. Is it is it a moral or, or is it moral? So look out for that next Thursday. But other than that, have a great week, everybody. Thank okay. you, Dale. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. All right, I've ended the...